Chapter 38 Heart Speaks The prince stopped mid-sentence. That sound. Did you hear something by any chance? His listeners, intent on the story, shook their heads collectively and disclaimed all knowledge of any sound whatsoever. Wait, said Arvarkadiyan abruptly. Isn't this place a little warmer than before? I seem to smell smoke too, volunteered Vandiya Tevan. Ayya, this area isn't dangerous, is it? Arvarkadiyan asked, worried. Should there be the slightest hint of peril, rest assured that Kaveri Amman will come to our rescue. The prince promised. Now, to continue. We broke camp and left at once. But it appeared that the dread fever had managed to strike. At least ten of my soldiers fell victim to this ague. Amma, I have never seen the likes of such a terrible malaise. That wretched disease can turn the bravest warrior into a quivering mass of terror. Men who have seen a hundred battles and think nothing of bloody injuries all over their body become nervous wrecks within three days of infection and blubber about wanting to return home. I reflected that it had been the Chora guardian deity Durga Parameswari herself who had taken human form as a mute woman and arrived to warn us. Not that she left us to stumble along later. I sensed her loving hand guiding us past wild beasts, eyeing us for prey, pythons crawling on our path, shadowy enemies, and so much more. She disappeared as swiftly as she made her presence felt. A few days were all it took for me to understand her expressive face and animated gestures and communicate in the same fashion. My heart, in fact, could read hers perfectly. So attuned to her was I that I acquired the gift of sensing my lady's presence in the vicinity. In fact, even now, the prince's voice trailed away. Get into your beds, both of you. Act like you're fast asleep even if you don't feel drowsy. Quick! The two scrambled into their beds at once and even, to their credit, tried to screw their eyes shut. But the avid curiosity that consumed them refused to let them close. Even as they stared through the slits of their eyelids, a figure approached the moonlit window. The same one they had seen opposite the crumbling mansion on an Anuradhapuram street. Came the faintest hiss. Arulmani Varmar obeyed the summons and went to the window. The figure outside made some sign. The prince pointed to his companions on the beds and had the satisfaction of receiving some sort of answer to that too in sign language. Arulmari Varmar issued instructions to his friends to follow him at once and left the mansion. The trio walked in the footsteps of the older woman a long time it seemed along a dark path shrouded by tall gloomy trees. Abruptly a stunning sight met them in the pearly rays of the moon. Huge, dark elephants clustered thickly in the distance, guarding a massive stubum. Vandya Tevan's breath stuttered in his throat. But the lady simply walked towards the giants, completely unfazed. What wonderful stonework to be sure! An astonished Arvar Kadyan muttered in his ears. That proportion and finish, don't they look absolutely real? It was only after this comment that Vandya Tevan realized the truth. And though the bewilderment abated somewhat, surprise did not vanish completely. Each of these massive stone pachyderms, standing cheek by jowl, possessed two lung tusks as they almost nestled into each other, fashioned as if to bear a mountainous stubum. 
One among the hundreds that loomed against the sky had a broken tusk. Their guide approached this elephant and moved the boulder that rested at its enormous foot. A stairway was revealed underneath. She went down and the others followed. Once they had descended and walked along a narrow passage, they came into a mandapam. Two large agal lamps burned within. The lady tweaked the stick of one and picked it up. She made a sign that only the prince may follow her. The others fidgeted a little, for the dangers of a solitary excursion with this woman worried them a little. But once they gleaned the lady's intentions, she was raising her lamp now and showing several paintings on the mandapam walls, their concern subsided somewhat. To the prince observing the art keenly, the pictures seemed to portray several scenes of a story in an orderly fashion. The paintings were done and displayed according to the prevailing fashion of the times, much like the tales of Lord Buddha's glorious incarnations in Viharams. But these had nothing to do with the Great One's life. They were centered upon a woman, and her countenance bore a startling resemblance to the lady who stood by Ponni and Selvar now. It wasn't too difficult to understand that these paintings were meant to portray the life of his mute guardian. The first of these panels showed a young woman standing by the shore of an isolated island, the sea lapping at the beach and her father rowing out to fish in his canoe, returning to land with his catch. The next showed the girl walking along a forest path. A young man sat upon a branch. He looked like a prince. A bear was clawing its way up his tree, but the prince seemed unaware of this danger, staring elsewhere. The young woman screeched a warning and ran. The bear gave up its quarry and pursued her. The prince jumped down and threw his spear at the beast. They fell upon each other and a fierce battle ensued. The young woman leaned against a convenient coconut tree and watched the combat avidly, eyes gleaming. In the end, victory was the princess. The bear fell to the ground, dead. The young prince approached the girl and tried to express his gratitude. Tears rolled down her beautiful face and she stayed silent, offering no answer. Then she flitted away and returned with her father. The fisherman explained that his daughter was mute, a revelation that depressed the prince. The sorrow changed to delight soon enough as he began and soon developed his acquaintance with her. The flowers of the forest bloomed in his hands to be fashioned into exquisite garlands. They decorated her lustrous hair or wreathed her neck. Those lonely woods saw them strolling through dense jungle, hands entwined, lost in themselves. Paradise didn't seem eternal, however. A large vessel appeared in proximity to the island. Several soldiers descended to shore, found the prince and paid him their respects. They begged him to return with them to the ship. The prince consoled the young woman with many soft words and took his leave. Soon, the ship that bore him disappeared over the horizon. The young woman lost herself in grief after his departure. Her days were spent in mournful tears. Her father, who had sensed the direction his daughter's life was taking and who couldn't bear her distress, took her in his boat across the sea. He came ashore in the vicinity of a lighthouse, where both were welcomed by a family. Soon they travelled upon a simple bullock cart to a large city surrounded by high fort walls. There, in the balcony of a beautiful palace, stood the prince, wearing a gleaming crown. Several people surrounded him, attired in rich silks and elaborate jewellery. The young woman stared at the sight, dismayed and sorrowed beyond imagination. 
Her heart gave way. She ran away, on and on, until she reached the seashore. She climbed atop the lighthouse and jumped. The waves in whose arms she'd spent a lifetime carried her now. A boatman cruising in his vessel spotted her bobbing in the waters and dragged her to safety. Her demented look convinced him that a ghost possessed her, and in his kindness, he left her in a local temple, where the priest blew a handful of vibhuti in her face and thrashed her with a clump of neem leaves, according to ritual practice. The temple was roused to frantic activity and visitors one day, for a great queen had arrived to pay obeisance to the deity. The priest informed the royal of the demented woman from the Valenir caste. The queen was with child and learned that the refugee was pregnant as well. She took the young woman with her and in due time, the latter gave birth to twins in the royal gardens. The queen paid a visit and asked to raise one of the children as her own, only to be refused. Soon, however, the mute woman began to have second thoughts. Wouldn't it be much better for both babies to be raised in affluent surroundings? Her heart was made up. She fled the palace in the dead of the night without anyone the wiser. For years she roamed the forest, a lonely spirit with a heartache that couldn't be assuaged, an ache that could be soothed sometimes by the sight of her beloved children. Rare enough were the opportunities offered her, and sometimes the pain would be excruciating. The desire to see her children from afar at least unbearable, and she would secret herself by the trees clustering the riverside. These were the moments she lived for, when the king, his queens and children glided along the river on elaborate royal barges. She would feast upon the site for a while and then slip away between the trees. At one time though, a child fell into the water. No one noticed. She plunged into the river, brought him up and delivered him into safe hands. She submerged herself in the water almost at once, reached the opposite shore and melted into the forest. Every single one of these incidents had been etched most realistically on the walls of the mandabams with a red kavi stick. Prince Arulmurivarmar took them all in, heart brimming with intense eagerness and astonishment. At the final panel, he turned to her. I was the child rescued from the river. You were my saviour, he mimed. The lady embraced him lovingly and kissed his forehead. She then escorted him to another section of the mandabam and showed him more paintings. These were not scenes from her life, but warnings about the various perils and dangers that threatened the prince and she took some pains to reveal them through drawings and elaborate gestures. The prince's companions saw it all, standing at a strategic corner. Mandyatevan couldn't help but compare the lady's face with Nandini's own. Strange thoughts flitted through his mind and uneasy suspicions. This, however, was hardly the right time to expound on them and he preserved a discreet silence. They exited the mandapam guarded by stone elephants. The lady, still serving as their escort, now began to ascend the stubam towards the summit while the rest marvelled at her phenomenal stamina. Vandyatevan himself was exhausted by now but marshalled his fading resources and climbed without a word. Halfway up, they paused and looked out to see a section of the old city engulfed in flames. Ah! An exclamation was surprised out of the prince. Mahasena Chakravarti's ancient palace is burning. Was that where we bedded down? Indeed, yes. And if we'd spent the night there, in sleep? We'd have been offered up to satiate Agni Bhagwan's hunger, of course. How can you be so sure that that was our camp? It is quite far out. I'm sure, for the paintings within the mandabam 
were kind enough to inform me but we heard nothing unsurprising art is its own language you know a unique mode of communication very few people can converse in it comfortably dare we ask if this uh, art conveyed some other information to you you may and it did secrets regarding my family for instance furthermore it also warned me to leave ilangai as soon as possible ha long live art and all of its marvelous languages vandyatevan exulted oi vaishnavait it looks like i won now what do you have to say the paintings didn't stop with that did they your highness correct me if i'm wrong but didn't they warn you of the following too as long as you're in ilangai it would be best to avoid sleeping under roofs walking beneath houses and tearing under trees arvarkadi unrolled i'm right aren't i you were smiled the prince as to how you knew you might claim expertise in the language of art your highness but this servant has some little acquaintance with facial expressions i spent quite a while watching your guardian deity's animated countenance as her ladyship communicated it to you not bad at all now there's only one jamam left of the night i suggest we continue to the top of the stubam and snatch some sleep while we can announced the prince we can resume our journey at dawn the sun's sharp rays stung vandyatevan to wakefulness the next day as though the very real occurrences of the previous day hadn't been enough a whole host of conspirators arsonists mute women deaf men bears clawing up trees ghosts ghouls ranting buddhist monks and gleaming crowns paraded through his nightmares at random making even sleep an unnerving experience with morning came the bright sun though banishing terrible dreams and awful specters his confusion and panic vanished the prince and arvar kadian had already arisen and prepared themselves for travel by the time vandya tevan banished the mists of sleep from his brain he dressed himself as well and the trio descended the stupam without delay taking care to keep to the middle of the street they wended their way to the mahameha vanam which contained within its hallowed precincts the sacred and much venerated bodhi tree a thousand and five hundred years ago devotees both buddhist monks and others surged towards this tree circumambulating and showering the tree with fragrant flowers prince arulmuri varmar paid his respects as well kingdoms that hold the world in thrall and their rulers may be swallowed by the march of time but this bodhi vricham stands even now prove that dharmam still and will always endure he said to the others scrutinizing his surroundings as he did so three horses were tethered in a corner ready for travel and three men stood by holding the reins their faces brightened once the prince approached and they folded their hands with much respect arunmuri varmar inquired something of them and then turned to vandyatevan it was indeed mahasena's palace that burned down last night where we were supposed to have rested these men were anxious lest we might have lost our lives in the conflagration now that they have seen us safe and sound their delight and relief know no bounds a thousand and five hundred year old tree might still stand but it's been aeons since justice died a slow and painful death vandyatevan quipped don't you dare say that arvarkadian butted in how could dharmam have died as long as i'm hale and hearty the trio climbed onto their horses and left anuradhapuram through the north gate they attracted no attention as crowds of people still thronged the city streets leaving through all four gates now that the festival was at an end 
The small town of Mahindalai was situated approximately a kadam northeast of Anuradhapuram. This is where Mahindar, Emperor Asoka's son, first spread the word of the Buddha. Ah, how great was his good fortune, mused the prince. Fate didn't force him to march across lands with his enemies nor slink around the city in a desperate bid to escape murderers and assassins. So much for his good fortune then, commented Vandiyathevan. The prince was surprised into a rich chuckle. <laughs> Never ever leave my side, he informed the young man. The most terrible catastrophe would turn into pleasurable amusement in your company and the most enjoyable pastime into intolerable bore, quipped Arvar Kadyan. A huge swirling dust storm rose ahead of them on the road at this very moment. The loud of several horses could be heard galloping forward at breakneck speed. A small cavalry regiment was visible within the next few moments. The lances in their soldiers' hands glittered in the morning sun. Ayya, murmured Vandiyathevan, instantly on the alert. Unsheathe your sword at once. <laughs>